0: Chosen as my psalm, the psalm number 2. The so psalm 2 writes, Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot it in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. And throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. And terrifies them in his wrath. Saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. We warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I've taken this psalm because I believe it's so relevant to the world society in which we live today. You see, people might say to us, read these words here. How can words written 3,000 years ago have any relevance to our world today? To that I would answer, they have every relevance. They are particularly relevant. And we know here the psalmist was King David, and yet he was given the prophetic word to go way beyond his own generation and prophesy of the coming of the kingship of the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And as Hilary mentioned, I'll refer to to Acts chapter 4. And in that chapter, what do we find this? We find that Peter and John go to the temple gate. Because they've healed a lame man. And what's the outcome? Are they thanked for it? No. They're interrogated and threatened by the authorities. And they go home to their homes and they pray. That's called a believer's prayer. And... As they do so, it wasn't long before Psalm 2 came in. And so they, they, spoke, they say, you spoke the word by your Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and the anointed one. I mean, as the words we read as well, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And, you know, read these accounts in Acts chapter 4. Anyone would think they mugged the man at the temple gates, not healed him. But you know, that's the thing. When the world, when the church today does nothing for people in the world, the world leaves it alone. But when, by the grace of God, the ch- church moves in power and might and does things to redeem people, then we have the antagonism of the world, this rage of the world in which we live. And, you know, it's almost hard to read these words. I think that wonderful... Arias by Handel, Messiah, that massive musical masterpiece, and how Handel uses Psalm 2. And he follows his excerpts from Psalm 2 by going straight into Revelation with a Hallelujah chorus where we say, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent raise. And then most familiar words, why do the nations so furiously race together? And why do the people imagine a vain thing? So I can't resist singing that. It's, it brings those words to my mind. And Handel used the words, but so powerful. And you go to Psalm 2 and rejoice in all that God is going to do. And you go straight into the book of Revelation. And we're told here, you know. Acts chapter 4. The church was on a collision course with the world. The church is always on a collision course with the world. Christ is against culture. Christ is above culture as someone put it. We're meant to be against the world in which we live to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, those disciples there, they brought to prayer those words from Psalm 2 because they know that those words of David, echoed so long ago, are still relevant to them. And we know they're so relevant to us today. And David was prophesying so accurately of the world in every age. David was prophesying of the coming, of the majesty, of the triumph and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And David expressed horror of the world in which he lived. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together against the Lord and against his anointed one. It's accurate, a state of the affairs of the world in which we live today. It's particularly relevant. This psalm to our current generation. You see, are we made for the times? Or are we made by the times? Are we a people who conform to the world? Or people who conform to what God wants us to do for his kingdom? And James says in James chapter 4 verse 4, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And we shouldn't be surprised if as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, we meet the opposition of the world in which we live today in every age. In 1 John we find those words, see what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. And if the world so treated the Son of God in the way it did, are we surprised the world tries to treat the sons of God in just the same way with such fierce opposition? If we ever feel comfortable in the world in which we live, we're going very, very astray. Because as God's people, our task is not to adjust our doctrine, not to adjust what we believe to the wills or lusts of the world, but instead to conform to what God wants us to do. You know, in the world in which we live, people struggle for peace. People struggle answer. You know, in about three weeks' time, they have Remembrance Sunday, where in a strange way, the church meets the world and gets together with it. And I pray this, perhaps this Remembrance Sunday, the church may tell the world what's wrong with it, rather than just merely acquiesce. And people think that the 21st century is so different. It's not. There is nothing new under the sun, as the Bible tells us. The world has always been as it has, and the world always shows as it is. And so Jesus comes again and calls time on human history. And we live in an age drunk on human knowledge. C.S. Lewis, he called it chronological snobbery, where we always think in our generation... We are so different, so spectacularly special compared to people who have gone before us. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians, these words, reminds us. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is a wise man? Where is a scholar? Where is a philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the world thinks so often it can create utopia. Can create the perfect world where people live in harmony and peace and there is no war. But that can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you think about the Roman Empire. They first invented central heating. They first invented good baths. They invented so many things. And yet, the Roman Empire collapsed. And it wasn't what everyone meant, mad by the lead pipes and the plumbing. It was because it was corrupted from within. It fell from within it, in the end, it was ended by external attack, but largely, the Roman Empire fell from sheer corruption of human nature from within. That mighty empire was cast aside utterly. And so often found the Bible, that there are false prophets who, are, who arise. False prophets who want to give the world what the world wants. So in Jeremiah, people were saying, Peace when there was no peace. And Jeremiah was warning them that, that disaster was about to overtake them. In, in the book of Kings, we find that King Ahab tried to seek advice for prophets. And the prophet warned him of what was going to happen against all the false prophets were saying. And our message has to be this. The world, the, our message has always been and always will be contrary to human Wisdom and culture of the world. We don't look to human solutions. We don't look to human hopes. You know, the writer H.G. Wells, who was totally against religion at all, but as he said, no religion has any answer to H.G. Wells. He wrote these amazing books, you know, The Shape of Things to Come. In the War of the Worlds, human, human beings even triumph over the Martians. But yes, And he wrote that book, The Shape of Things to Come, The Time Machine, all these great things. They were all based upon how man would come into his own and triumph and overcome all adversity. But yes, at the end of his life, H.G. Wells wrote a final book. It was called The Human Mind at the end of its tether. And H.G. Wells wrote that man had finally blown it. There was no more hope. The Bible here explains our very human condition. But thank God, the Bible doesn't just tell us what's wrong. The Bible tells us in the world how it can be remedied. And in this Psalm 2, you know, it's really in four parts. It's telling us how the nations rage. Then it's telling us what's God's response. Then we find Jesus speaking. and finally, David the psalmist winds up that wonderful message. And we're told in verse 1 these words, aren't we? Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? They conspire. Or as some versions put, they rage. They rage against God in the tensions of the world. Isaiah 17 writes this. Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roarings of great waters. And sometimes the sea, we know it can seem quite tranquil like a mill pond. But then the sea rages again with a hurricane and the storm. And in the whole of human history, there have been times where human beings thought that we've done it, we've arrived at utopia. Peace has come, that's it. It happened Probably after the first, before the First World War, and then the First World War bro- broke out, and then mankind said, "Ah, that's the war to end all wars." But 20 years after the war to end all wars, another war happened. They had confidence in the League of Nations that fell apart, and in the United Nations too. It's largely ineffective. And then, you know, when the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet bloc collapsed. Everyone thought it was wonderful. Mankind has made it finally. We had the first Gulf War. Kuwait was returned to its lawful dictator. Everyone thought it was wonderful. Then those planes crashed on the World Tower in September 11th, 2001. I was in America at the time walking into the foyer of the building I was working in. I actually saw the planes hit live at that time. We became aware that no, no, no. The so-called peace, the storm, hadn't passed away. The nations were still raging in tension. And as verse 2 says, the kings of the earth take their stand. The kings of the earth, in other words, the whole of the human race take their stand against the Lord and against the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8-7 says the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But I are told in the Bible that the whole human race rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. And when men and women are at war against God, they will, as a consequence, always be at war against their fellow human beings we told, though, even more terrible, verse 3. Let us break their chains, they say, and they throw off their fetters. The world in which we live wants to see any restraint be done away. In this secular age, this postmodern age, where that's a fancy word for everything being a right mess, really. But in this world in which we live, everything's in chaos. And there's virtually no longer any strands of morality. And the world is trying to destroy any remaining strand of morality that's inherited our Christian heritage. Once time, things were tolerated. Then they're accepted. And now they're almost celebrated. The world in which we live is a world that actually is proud of the sin in which it is. And they want to break away from God. Oh, the same sin in the Garden of Eden where Satan said to Adam and Eve, you know, eat of this fruit and you shall be like God. The world wants any fetters, any shackles. They think that God is placing upon us to be removed. While all the time they don't realise they are the prisoners. The hymn puts it, Jesus The prisoner's fetters breaks and bruises Satan's head. The world today wants to be free of all restraints. As a psalmist says, here's what the world says. Let's break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. But you see, what is God's response in verse 4? The Lord enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. What is God's response? To laugh at the opposition because we know that He is in control. The cross laughs at what men and women want to do. And then the Psalmist says here in verse five, then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Terrifies them in His wrath. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. When we use the term here, the wrath of God, we don't mean God's angry and shouting at us. What we mean is this, that God is the one who utterly detests any form of sin, that which falls short of his glory and what we're meant to be. And here I'm not talking at any particular sin. I'm talking about all sins. Because we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And why does God laugh? Why does God scoff them? The psalmist tells us in verse 6, doesn't he? I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let the world rage with all its rebellion against the living God. And all the time, the kings of the earth are plotting, doing their own thing. All the time, God has installed his king on Mount Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus sits upon the throne. Paul writes, Again, in Romans chapter 1, these words. In, in verse 4. And who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus, our Lord. The King is there when the Old Testament, they anointed a king. They anointed a king wanting to know that God had poured his favour upon that kingship. When even our queen was crowned in Westminster Abbey, I think back in 1953 or so, she was anointed. And in that ceremony, there was expectation and a hope that God was anointing her monarchy. As indeed I believe he has. The king Being anointed. But how much more here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ? See, John Calvin wrote these wonderful words. Thus we look to our head, who is already in heaven, and say, Although I am weak, there is Jesus Christ. Who is powerful enough to make me stand upright. Although I am feeble, there is Jesus Christ who is my strength. Although I am full of all miseries, Jesus Christ is immortal glory. And what he has will sometime be given to me. And I shall partake of all his benefits. Yes, the devil is called the prince of the west world. But what of it? Christ Jesus holds him in check. For he is king of heaven on earth. There are devils above us in the air. Who make war against us. But what of it? Jesus Christ rules above. Having entire control of the battle. Thus we need not doubt that he gives us a victory. I am here subject to many changes. Which may cause me to lose courage. But what of it? The son of God is my head who is exempt from all things, I must then take confidence in Him. The King is on the throne. And when the King is on the throne, we know this. That the right, this, David says in verse 7, I will decree, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. Here's the Lord speaking. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Proclaiming the Lord's decree in contrast to everything the world in which we live is trying to proclaim. We proclaim the Lord's decree. And the Lord says, it's in verse 8, this wonderful promise to God's people, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. Ask of me and I will give. Often people regarded as great kings were really favoured the ones who asked of them. You know, King Artaxerxes in the book of Esther said to Esther, say what your request is Esther, I'll give you up to half my kingdom to ask the Lord. And John Newton puts it Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself hath bid thee pray. Oh, therefore, do not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring for his grace and truth are such. None can ever ask too much. And James says in chapter 4, the problem is this. You... You do not ask of God. And I wonder so often in our churches today, if the reason our churches are as they are so often have become so much a human institution rather than a habitation of God's Holy Spirit is because we've lost the habit. We've got out the exercise of always asking God to provide all of our needs. And, you know, we have our modern business methods, don't we, so often. We have all our meetings. We have all our, own, all our human planning. But how often do we come utterly before the Lord to ask him to supply all our needs and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And the, end the, the second part of verse 8 says, Because we ask of the Lord, he has a promise. I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Victory is secure, because Jesus died and rose again. If we ask him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he'll grant all that we need to do his will. We needn't have many umpteen seminars asking how we can engage with the community. How in some vague and woolly philosophical way we can get people interested in the church. Through God we have possession of the land. We're meant to ask for that possession. I believe the Lord will wonderfully supply it to us. And here's a warning too that For the land in which we live. Sin darkened. Sin broken. Sin possessed. Here is the promise. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. The kings of the earth who are rising in rage against the Lord. Here is the promise. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. And three times in the book of Revelation... That verse is referenced. It's so important. In Psalm 1, we're told the wicked are being driven like chaff. In the second Psalm, the wicked are being broken in pieces. Isaiah 13 says, Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee far away driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, the tumblebead before a gale. He will break in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, a great potter was Josiah Wedgwood. And at Wedgwood, he really had the idea of the highest possible quality of his pottery. Walter will know from the potteries. And he was apparently a cranky old, uh, bad tempered person, Josiah Wedgwood, Not the person he'd like to work for, I don't think. And he had a a unique method of quality control. He'd walk around the workshop. He'd inspect what people were making. If he wasn't happy with it, he'd take his walking stick and smash it to pieces. But how much more will the Lord smash to pieces all the rages of the nations and give victory to his people and in verse 10, you know, David, the psalmist, gives God word this way. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And we find in the Old Testament, King Nebuchadnezzar. He did not give glory to God. He was reduced to a shivering wreck, eating grass for food, till he repented and came back to the Lord. And David says, therefore, you kings, Remind ourselves, David was a great king himself. But he knew his weakness, knew all his limitations. He knew by prophecy of the greater king who was to come and who would occupy his throne forever and ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. You kings be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, there's a danger today that we don't r- rightly divide the work, the word of truth. God is love, that's so amazing. But I believe we can only comprehend the greatness of God's love if first of all we know and feel that our God is a God of holiness, is a God of justice. And I once heard someone speak Saint this way. He solved the problem of evangelism by, he met somebody who said they didn't believe in God. So, he said to them, do you believe in love? And the bird said, yes. In that case, you believe in God because God is love. Problem solved. Not quite. He, I think he had a problem with Aristotle that way. But you see, a man called Gresham Machin about 100 years ago said this, we need to be careful about proclaiming only a partial God. God is love. But God is holy as well. And we need to come before the Lord with a holy fearing. The evangelist George Whitfield once said, first you go to Mount, Zion, Mount Sinai and hear the law. And see the holiness of God. And then you go to Mount Zion. We go to Mount Zion en route. En route by Mount Sinai. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. For he is a great and holy and loving God. And the more we appreciate God's holiness, the more we will know that how we violate God's holiness by our human nature and just exactly the magnitude of the love of God on the cross on Calvary's hill. And he says this to the world to us in the final verse, these words. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. And when David wrote those words, he was aware that so often when a, a king was anointed, his subjects would pay him homage. When well, the person, I believe, gets a cabinet job from the queen. They go to Buckingham Palace. They kneel down, they kiss the hand of the Queen in allegiance and in homage. And how much more should we pay homage to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You know, Judas kissed the son. It was a kiss of betrayal, not a kiss of obedience. When David says here, kiss the son, kiss, take the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ Christ reaching out to us and pay him homage as King of kings and Lord of all. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That's what the world still does in our time today in every generation. But praise God, the king is on the throne. He will never be defeated. He will never be thwarted. In 1939, there's a man called William Sangster. He wrote this in December 1939 when Britain was faced in in the face of defeat in the Second World War. He wrote these words. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The cross is a pledge of that. In those moments of unmeasurable horror, when we fear that even God's patience will be exhausted with our wicked race and all the windows of heaven closed from within against the scenes of earth, let us repair again to Calvary. Here is the ground of unquenchable hope. He will never forsake the world of his incarnation and sacrificial death. God is on the throne. Truth is indestructible when the shallow hopes of this world are all dead. Hope on in God. The nations rage. The nations have always raged. But God is on the throne. That's a message of this wonderful psalm we share in heights Amen.